0: My name is Linda Keller, longtime member here, and today we're going to be reading uh, from Colossians 3, 18 to Colossians 4, 2. And you can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you there on page 984. Again, Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 2. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in, in it with thanksgiving. And this is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. I don't know if it would be like a high attendance. Everybody's getting in like one last set of prayers or (laughs) if you had to man the smoker, but I'm glad that you are. Glad you're with us. Hey, we can just like don't have to choose between being excited about the game and taking this moment serious. Um, But as you just heard this text, like it's kind of an altitude change from what will happen this afternoon to a text about justice and mercy and our vocation. So um, I want to invite you like Not to have to choose, but maybe to acknowledge that we need some help focusing a little bit to go, God, would you help me engage this text? I got a jersey on and I'm trying to engage in social justice. Maybe those feel like um, two distinct motives or emotions. And so uh, we'll just ask for God's help. And as we do that, I want to just pray at the beginning. Um, I don't know what's happening in you as you hear these words. Uh, There's things about marriage that are in there that have uh, brokenness and have longings in it. This morning, we're going to focus on the slaves and masters text which we're calling a social and vocational text to think about how we engage in the world around us. has something to do with our jobs, but it's first about society. And as we think about the way race and slavery and those injustices have impacted our country and our lives personally, there's a lot of loss and confusion and fear and longing and hurt. And we um, have lots of different experiences with that. Some of you, it's more hurt Some of you, it's more confusion. Some of it's shame and guilt. Some of it's apathy. Uh, There's a lot of emotions that we feel. And so I just want to invite you to kind of pray into uh, this morning and ask for God to speak to you. I, too, just want to say at the very beginning to our black and brown brothers and sisters, like, thank you for uh, what it means for you to be part of our community. I realize I'm speaking to a predominantly white, middle, upper middle class congregation, and that you are here um, is huge. Uh, I, I just want to say that I don't even know the best way to say that. I just want to acknowledge it and say thank you and I'm really grateful um, and as I'm talking I realize you'll hear this text differently but I hope the good news of Jesus hits you freshly in ways that nourish your soul in ways that you feel seen and uh, in ways that actually you feel like God has a word specifically for you so so it's complicated we have jerseys on let's pray and ask for God to help us as we jump into this would you just bow your head for a moment Maybe you would just pray for 30 seconds. Just take a deep breath and ask God to speak to you in light of justice and race and social issues, things that we feel, things you've experienced, things that have happened to you, things that you've done. Just take a moment and pray. Gracious God, we come now with this mix in our hearts, but what we share together is our need for you, regardless of our background and experiences, um, what we've read, what we've seen, how we feel. You you have a word for us, and all of us have a deep, deep, um, abiding, tangible need for you. So would would you help? Would you speak? Would you move in our hearts individually and then would you use this text to shape us as a people uh, so that we're more in line with your heart so we we walk out your kingdom values that we see what you're doing in this text so we can apply it to our world Uh, we just ask for that and for the places of like resistance or um, feeling overwhelmed that will make it hard to engage uh, for the distractions maybe in our souls would you help us focus speak to us and, and be tender with us there's a lot that we need more than we can do this morning. So we, we trust you to help us. Um, we bring these things to you confidently and humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Hey, so if you haven't been with us by way of hospitality, let me just kind of locate this into where we've been. I don't know what you think about the church or what the church is for, but when we ask what we should be doing as a people, we're trying to focus on this passage from Colossians 3one one. To four six, and what we see in this text is not like a unique vision for our specific church. I think it's what you see God's call to Christians who are followers of Jesus to do, kind of wherever they find themselves, whatever it's a a, a space in history, wherever they are in culture. Uh, this is a word for all of us, and so we we've used a diagram to kind of help, just kind of orient us a little bit. I think it'll show up behind me in a moment. As it shows up, I'll just kind of talk for a second. Uh, so we've talked about. A transformation being at the center. What Jesus came to do was actually change us and heal us and transform us. So for church to be about what Jesus is about is to be about transformation. And then we just ask, how's it happen? And the text walks us through kind of three things that, that take place or that we need, three ways to engage in a process of transformation. First is rooting our identity in Jesus, which would be trusting him for our righteousness. We saw that in Colossians 3, 1 to 4 this idea of being hidden with Christ and God, there is no real change apart from Jesus. You might change your behavior, you might change some of your patterns, but, but real inside-out change takes something deeper than we can pull off on our own, which the Christian message is that's exactly why God came into our world to save and to redeem us. So it starts with identity in Christ. And then we immediately realize we've put our identity in other things, which calls us into a space of repentance. I think there's a little negative sign on one of those circles up there. In that space, we get a chance from Chapter 3, verses 5 to 11, to just name some spaces where our hearts have drifted and we've longed for other things. So, a chance to repent, to be honest, to unburden ourselves. The text uses frameworks of like clothing to, to take off these things of the flesh. And then you don't just like stop doing bad things, change happens as you actually change. As you move from one thing back to another because of what Christ has done, now you align yourself with his heart, with what he's called us to, with the kingdom ethics and virtues and values. So we see in Colossians 3, 12 to 17, a, a beautiful kind of composite sketch of what it would mean if we were trusting Christ, how we might react and act in the world around us. So, so it's trusting Jesus. It's turning away from other things that we've trusted and then moving towards walking out our faith. That's how transformation Happens, and then the text gives us some practices to engage with. So, as a church, we want to be committed to God's word, to, to praying. That's why we do it here corporately. It's why we have prayer gatherings throughout the week. It's, we want to be a people that just acknowledge our need through prayer. We want to worship regularly, not just in this room, but in our hearts to exalt Jesus as we see Him. We're changed, and then we need relationships. The text tells us that we need community. There's a tons of one another commands in that space. So, God's word. As we pray, as we worship in relationship, those practices help us change. And then it's not just theoretical stuff or private stuff. The text goes on to make application to where we live our real lives. So last week we spent time in personal relationships and in the home and marriage and in parenting. And we said, of course, it's not limited just to those who are married or those who have, have children. So we just said personal relationships, including singles and widows and widowers, everybody who's in a space where they're in relationship, God's words has a space for us to think about living out our transformation in the places where we actually live our lives. So, so the intimate settings of our lives. And then it moves to our social and vocational settings. Where you actually spend maybe more of your waking hours, where, where you're engaged in the world around you, where you're thinking about your job, where you're thinking about your relationships, and you're thinking about what does it mean to live as light in a really dark world? How do we come against injustice? How do we move towards the heart of God and those around us? And so, so we use this text that has a slaves and masters setting to kind of engage the idea that God wants to form and transform every sphere that we live in, so so to engage society and and the world around us. And then we'll look next week at this category of the outside world, of people that don't yet know Jesus. So it's not just those who know Christ that we're trying to engage with. There's a, a message outward going towards those who don't know Jesus. And so there's arrows on this little diagram that that have a a movement. It's meant to come from our hearts outward. It's always meant to be outward. That matches the heart of God, which is an outward-going, missional, incarnational God to go to where the needs are, to go to where the lost people are, to go to where the broken and sad and and the need for redemption is. That's where he goes. That's what he does. And so to be a follower of his is to do what he does and and to love what he loves and to trust what he teaches. And so so then we want to match his heart in those spaces and I actually don't really care if you can like remember all of this or draw this kind of on your own although I imagine if you did like maybe it would look something like this this is a Panera napkin this week actually I actually want this in your heart not because it's what our church is doing but because it's what I think the the Bible calls Christians to do so so therefore I think it's something that we should be focused on the diagram is less important to me as it is actually getting inside your heart to the degree that's helpful Great, where it's not helpful, we can pull it off the screen and you don't have to see it anymore. So in that space, I want you just kind of thinking through how do I engage the process of transformation? What are the practices that would lead towards that transformation? And how do I live this transformation out in the places where I really do my regular life? That, that's kind of where we've been. So we didn't just randomly choose these texts because they're easy to talk about. We chose them because it's where you actually live your life. And in the ancient world, these spheres of the home and the slaves and masters setting is where you would spend your time. It's, it's where you would find identity. It's where you would actually engage with those around you. And so the beautiful news of the gospel is that it's applying to wherever you find yourself. So we just said last week, like, there's uh, power differentials in this text. There's those who are kind of in the lower social position and those who are in the upper social position. And, and the answer for both of them is to trust Jesus. And so wherever you find yourself, whether you find yourself in what you might call a lower social position, or you might find yourself in a space you might call an upper social position, in that space, God wants to actually transform and redeem us by His grace. And the gospel works wherever you find yourself. It's not just a religion for the wealthy or the powerful. In fact, what's beautiful about this text just the, the raw reality of slaves and masters being addressed together communicates to us that the community is being transformed in such a way that there's deep equality. That Slaves and masters are sitting as brothers and sisters in the gathering. This is revolutionary as we think about the way the gospel spreads in the ancient world and in our modern world. So, so it's not just a religion for the powerful, nor just for the oppressed, it's for everyone. There's an inclusion and a unity in the Scriptures that God is speaking to us of our need wherever you find yourself, which that's a word to you this morning, wherever you find yourself. Skeptical, hurt, confused, exhausted, really hopeful. Up and to the right is the trajectory. Wherever you find yourself, the gospel works to where you are. And I don't just mean that pragmatically, but I mean that hopefully for you to say, God has a word for, for where you are. So, so that's where, where we've been, and now we're engaging in this specific situation of our social and vocational settings. And it makes us remember that we have limits and a lot of pain. And in our country, to talk about slaves and masters, there's immediate like lament, there's immediate sadness, there's immediate pain, there's a lot of anger, there's a ton of confusion, there's lots of fear, There's things that happen inside of us as soon as we step towards these categories. And the good news of the gospel is that's exactly why Jesus came, to come and engage those realities with us and for us. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to kind of walk through the passage and I want to kind of do three movements. I want to ask, how does this text fit in the larger story of the Bible? And then I want to ask, how does this text kind of make it good news to the story of those who are hearing it? And then I want to ask, how does this text shape our story? So how does this fit in the larger story of the Bible? How does it actually sound like good news to those who are in this situation? And then how do we let it shape our story as a church? So in that space, acknowledging all the spaces of our brokenness, would you look with me in verse 22 of chapter 3 in Colossians, so on page 984. It says, bond servants or slaves... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. There is no partiality. And masters, treat your bondservants or your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, as we jump into this text and we ask, how does this fit in the larger story? We just need to name, if this is all you ever talk about when it comes to slaves and masters, you are wildly malformed. The same way if all you ever think about when it comes to marriage is submission and headship, then you're wildly malformed. The Bible actually says a lot. So so as an illustration for, for marriage, you have to go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis to talk about God's good design for men and women. You have to see examples of amazing women leaders. You have to see a call for equality and justice. You have to see a call for mutual submission. You have to understand that every command to a Christian is meant to be lived out in their marriage if they're married or with their children, if they're parents or with their parents, if they're kids. Like it's meant to be, be all over your life. It's not just a handful of small commands if you do that, you'll be wildly malformed and distorted. But if you say this has no cultural relevance, you will be greatly diminished as well. It's part of what God says in his story. And so to remove this text as something that, that is either culturally driven or no longer relevant is to remove the hope that it actually offers to people. Because it says to those who find themselves in an oppressed situation that God sees them that they can live out their faith regardless of their circumstances, and that there is life-changing transformation available to them regardless of their social status. That is revolutionary good news. And so we neither want to just focus on this one text and be malformed, nor do we want to remove it and be diminished. We want to engage all of God's story. So so as we think about what we see throughout Scriptures, the Bible actually says a ton about slavery. And let's just start right at the beginning When you and I think about slavery and we think about chattel slavery of kidnapping Africans and people from the Caribbean and bringing them over to our country as purchased beings that would then work for slave labor for generations, that form of slavery is expressly prohibited in the scripture. So so what is in our minds when it comes to slavery is actually explicitly in black and white prohibited in the scriptures, so if you're taking notes, go to First Timothy chapter one, nine and ten, where where man stealing, kidnapping, is prohibited. It's named a bunch, a whole bunch of list of other sins and dysfunctions and deviant behavior. So the Bible explicitly prohibits what you and I normally think of when it comes to slavery. And I'm saying that because there's like there's all kinds of misunderstandings. And there's all kinds of pain. Most people ask questions and try to make sense of this, not just because they're attacking, it's because they're trying to make sense of their world and they're kind of understand why has the church or Christians actually used the scriptures to propagate something that seems so unjust. Isn't it unjust? And the scriptures say, yes, it is unjust. And those who have used a passage like this to, to extend injustice to brothers and sisters are doing that malformed thing. They're taking just this one passage, but if you were just to to zoom out just a little bit, you see explicitly prohibited. You see not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. You see in Exodus and in Jeremiah, you see the same prohibition to, to not kidnap, to not make slaves by kidnapping, which then makes us go, well, is there more going on in slavery? And when you think about the ancient world, it's a system. Uh, It's actually fascinating. I don't think anybody should say it was pleasant or good, but it is the part of the cultural fabric of the day. And what you see is a narrative that God is kind of telling that involves societies and peoples that are both enslaved and those who have slaves. Let me just read like one paragraph from a scholar because I want to just make the case just really, really clear. Let me just be super clear. What you feel nauseous about in our country's history, God explicitly prohibits and says is a sin. There were Christians who used the Bible to support it, but they were wrong. The Bible explicitly says man-stealing is wrong. Kidnapping people is wrong. It's always only wrong. And So if you've heard a version of something trying to justify the past, it's actually not true. We can just repent and say, we missed it. We, we blew it. And not just like, oh shucks, it's something that's deep. It's something that's costly. It's something that is painful. It's something that is a stain on the name of Jesus when God's people don't act in light with his will and his heart. You have versions of that that you're engaging with today. So before we get too high handed towards our forefathers, but, but we need to just say clearly it's out of bounds and wrong. But the Bible gives some like, instructions of how to do slavery and what rights slaves have. And so it's kind of confusing. You're like, so, so what's going on? So, so scholars have kind of looked back through history and have helped us understand that slavery was much different or broader than what we understand with this kind of colonialization and kidnapping and bringing people to our country and to, to other, other countries. Here's what one scholar says. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons of race by speech or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions in society. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 or 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly, they were not socially segregated, at least not in cities, and they could accumulate savings to buy their freedom that their natural inferiority was not something that was assumed. So I don't think you read that and go, oh, that must have been a great situation. No, you read and go, oh, man, that's really hard. Which is why God's word gives some like, regulations and some boundaries and some instructions to it. Okay, When you think about the story of God, I think it's helpful to go in four large movements of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We talk about this a lot. So God created then, then mankind fell, sin of the world. Christ came to actually redeem the world. And one day everything will be restored. So that is the arc of history. That's the story of the Bible. So let's just use that. When you go to Genesis 1 and 2, what you see is God beautifully creating with equality and diversity. You, you see there's not a distinction among races. You see God making people in his image as equals. So anything that says there's certain people groups or socioeconomic statuses or races or language or nationalities that are somehow not equal would be opposed to the Scriptures. God designed and created beautifully. Chapter 3 of Genesis is the fall. It's where we chose as mankind to take matters into our own hands and everything was shattered as we chose to be our own gods. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you turn away from the one true God, you look to something else to be God and power, and approval and control are are very near to hand you use shame and coercion you see the unraveling of society really quickly from chapter four to six i mean the whole thing is such a mess that god wipes the whole thing out by the time we get chapter six with noah this is intense dysfunction so we have been living into a broken form a marred form a malform from creation from the very beginning And then what God's Word does in all these passages is give some way to regulate that brokenness. It's not saying this is the way it's supposed to be. It was not the way it was in in the created order. And even there's some hints in this text, it's not the way it's going to be long term. But, But God is actually giving regulations and rules. And what you see throughout the Old Testament is an elevating. You see a prohibiting of misuse you see, set them free every seven years. You can't, you can't steal somebody. You can't treat them poorly. If you do harm them, you have to have retribution. So, so it's elevating what's going on. God's word is regulating the dysfunction. It's like what we see with divorce. Actually, we're going to jump into Matthew 19 in a couple of weeks we back in that series. And you'll see in chapter 19, Jesus is being trapped or tricked in a space where they ask him about divorce, and they say, is it right for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And he points them back to creation. What did God say at the very, very beginning? And then here comes the trap. Well, then why does Moses, which is the Old Testament, why does Moses give us regulations where a man could write a, a certificate for divorce? So the question is, if it's so wrong, then why did God give boundaries? And Jesus' answer is super helpful. He says, oh, because of the fallenness and brokenness of the human heart. But this is not the way it was designed to be. So what you see now is commands in Scripture in that fallen section where man is hurting each other and they're looking for power and they're, they're harming in that space. What you see is lots of commands to regulate that, to hold back injustice. Not, not to eradicate the system wholly in that moment, although that is the arc towards redemption. By the time you get to the prophets, you see prophecy that Messiah is going to come and set captives free. And this is a deposit on the emancipation that we long for, both spiritually and physically. So God's Word has regulations of the brokenness and then promises of redemption. And then Jesus comes on the scene and like Luke 4, such a beautiful text, He quotes the Isaiah Isaiah scroll and He says, Hey, I came to set captives free, to, to liberate, to heal, to take what was broken and to make it right. So the Messiah came to actually undo the fallenness of the world and it will take until he finally returns and makes all things new until we live into the fullness of that but the rest of the New Testament then is telling us how to engage in that and you see equality you see like there's no longer a distinction between slave and free and Jew and Gentile and male and female it doesn't mean there's no actual like visible distinctions but but there's no value distinctions you still live inside the system. It's not that we cease to be male or female, but those are no longer categories by which we, we rank. We're now one in Christ. I have like a pressed for time. I have four pages of verses. If you want to engage that with me, I would love to just like drop these on you and we can dialogue about them. I think it will encourage you. I think when you see the heart of God to step into a fallen and broken system to give like honor, and dignity in ways that would have been revolutionary to the ancient world, that actually are revolutionary to the time that Jesus is around, That's the time of these writings that Paul lays out. The Christian ethic that we see in both Old and New Testament is far beyond what you see in the culture. And you see stories of God's people being enslaved, 400 years enslaved in Egypt. God's doing something mysterious even in the brokenness. And you see people like Daniel and like Joseph who were slaves, who were sold and they were slaves. They were kidnapped and taken out of their country. But you see them as high-ranking government officials, still vulnerable to the whims of their masters. You see that with the lion's den and you see that with fiery furnaces and you see that with Potiphar's wife. You see they're still vulnerable, but you see there's something different about that world. But still the regulations come to bring about justice and, and dignity. But that is the larger story. And what Christ came to do is set captives free. And now he's calling his people to live in these systems. But here's what's going on in this text. Now let's turn to how is this actually good news. What this text says to people is you don't have to change your social class to live out the gospel. You don't have to flip society. So you have to wait until the final restoration of all things to actually have dignity and to live in light of the kingdom of God. Wherever you find yourself, the gospel works. So there's words to masters. There's words to husbands. There's words to parents, those who would have been in higher social positions. And there's words to those who are in that lower position, to, to women and to children and to slaves. And we saw this pattern last week. It's like this sandwich. You see the... the, the Lower one named first, which again, that would be just revolutionary. That they're even addressed as revolutionary. That they're addressed first as revolutionary. That they're addressed with their masters and with their husbands and with their parents is revolutionary. And then you see a call to trust Jesus. And then you see a corrective to those who have power. But the Jesus thing goes both directions. Because he's Lord, as unto him, because of his glory, out of fear for him, he's the one who's in the center of this whole thing. Lower position higher position, but both can then relate and can be transformed and changed. Okay, larger story for this specific people. Go with me now back to the text in verse 22. Let's just like see what he says in ways that we actually can find some, some hope. I'm telling you this would have been revolutionary. It actually is neither condemned nor condoned. What God is doing in the scripture is transforming these social settings, which is super instructive for us. The Christian's primary power is not political. It's through prayer and dependence and living out light in the fallen and broken world. And what we see in the ancient world is as God's people embodied these values, it did flip society upside down. That you are appalled by slavery is evidence that this worked, that the ark was set, that the seeds were planted and the redemption and change happened. Because there's nothing in nature that would tell you that's not the way it's supposed to be. But when you get a hold of dignity, you get a hold of the Imago day. you get a hold of equality, you get a hold of the ethic of treating people, you get a hold of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When you get a hold of the idea that Christ is your master, that Christ is your husband, that God is your father, that you were on the outside, when those realities take root in your heart, it changes you. And whole worlds and systems and little families are radically changed as God's people embody these values. So he says to slaves in verse 22, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Tons to qualify there, right? Does he mean everything? Like surely not, right? And actually the reference as unto Jesus that's coming right? with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, that, that is actually where our master lies. And so we wouldn't do something that is outside the bounds of what God has called us to. the same way that wives are called to submit to their husbands. It's not in everything, in every way, all the time, no matter what. Actually, sometimes laying down your rights to your own kind of comfort, which is what I think submission is to lay down your rights to what you want for the sake of another person, sometimes looks like confrontation. We see it in the Old Testament, like with Daniel. right? He's confronting the system around him. He's facing the consequences of that, but, but he stands against the injustice, believing that God is the one that he finally answers to so so bond servants submit to everything and we would put some some quotes on that th- those things that are in keeping with God's word those things that are in keeping with God's heart and when you resist injustice you'll face the consequences as God's people and now all these commands about suffering begin to make sense because in the suffering it's in God's people choosing to actually align themselves with his heart and face the consequences in a fallen and broken world that the light of Christ is most brightly shining because that's where it most brightly shown for Jesus Himself. On the cross, as He's the one who's only innocent and holy and perfect, He faces injustice. He faces political and social injustice. He faces wrong. And He goes to the cross. He willingly submits Himself to the consequences of standing against the darkness in ways that actually radically transform and change the world. So, so everything, quote, Submission in quotes, everything in quotes. Believing that it's unto Jesus. Because we're actually asking now of a new identity. How do we live in light of our faith? And then he gives some like exhortations. He gives some encouragement. He says, bond servants obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Not simply to be seen a certain way, but actually from something that's coming from the inside out. Remember, transformation is coming from the inside out. In that space, actually, you can engage with a sincere heart. And all the things that he's talked about in chapter 3 now get to be applied as slaves live out their faith with their masters. that That they forgive, that they bear with one another. That they speak against the injustice. That they challenge the brokenness. They do all those things as unto Jesus, fearing the Lord, it says. Verse 23, and whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. There's a future oriented eschatological hope for these people who find themselves in spaces where it's really hard to find kind of a tangible hope in society to say, oh, remember, the ark of the story is moving towards redemption and restoration. You will receive an inheritance from the Lord because he is the one that you're actually serving. So, so there's this call to engage kind of wholeheartedly. There's a call not to be just seen a certain way and a call to a specific eternal inheritance that we have because of what Christ has done. There, there's a challenge here too in verse 25 not to combat wrong with wrong. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done and there is no partiality, it just frames like how do we resist, how do we stand against injustice, not with more injustice, but, but aligning ourselves with, with the heart of God, which we see like the reformers in the civil rights movement who, who protested by the voice of the powerless, who protested and faced the consequences, but stood against the injustice of society, not with more wrong, but kind of exposing the wrong. To have their, their lives actually affected by the darkness in visible ways is what changed our country's conscience. So it's not to do it with more wrong, he, he says in that space. Okay, those are the specific commands. And then you see, to the masters, to engage with their servants, their slaves, their bond servants, with justice and with fairness. They're not your property. They are your brothers and sisters. And these are things that are close to the heart of God. Justice and fairness to come with equity and with mercy, to come and do justice, the masters are told to do. right. So the orientation there is actually around the heart of God that you're supposed to live in light of the things that have happened. You don't have special rights that you take advantage of people with. You are to use your position to do justice and fairness to your brothers and sisters. Okay, a couple of things just as you zoom out and look at the text, not the specific words, but just the bulk of it there. Notice the three couplets that we see of wives and husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters. How much time is given to slaves and masters? I mean, it's a whole lot more. It's like three times as much space is given to that situation, which cues us a little bit. If he changes the rhythm, he wants us to notice something. He spends more time there because it's actually the one system that wasn't part of God's original design and creation. In the parallel passage in Ephesians where we see the same three couplets, what you see is with marriage and with parenting, references to the Old Testament, grounding the commands to to the commands of God. But you don't see that in Ephesians when it comes to slaves and masters, which cues us to the idea here that we're talking about a broken system in a fallen world and how God's people live into that. And what you see in that pattern is that God is right there in the center of it. Five times Jesus is named in this space to give an orienting hope to those who are oppressed. Jesus finds himself as a slave, as a servant, as one who is oppressed, as one who goes all the way to the cross. He identifies with the broken and the lowly. He identifies with those who are in that lower social position. Even though Philippians says he was God himself, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Coming into our world in actually ways that reorient the hope that these people would have had. Not just those people way back then, but every person since then. We don't want to erase this from our consciousness or say it's no longer relevant because it would erase the hope that's there. That you don't have to change your situation for the gospel to be good news. For you. you can live into wherever you find yourself. Is a message God has for his people. And what you see then, just kind of blatantly, and I've made it lots of times, is the heart of God for inclusion, for welcome, for, for unity. Remember in, in this passage earlier when we're dealing with that positive redemptive patterns in Colossians 3 12 to 17, you get that space there where there's no longer these categories of, of slave and free. And the space that there's an inclusion, it's actually verse 11, I'm sorry. And then what you see is this same grounding idea in verse 17, that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then that idea is going to be stretched out through these actual spaces where you live your lives. So so how is it good news for them? There's a pattern there of redemption. There's an inclusion and a welcome and a unity Christ is at the center of it. And there's ways that God calls them to act and react that live in light of the kingdom that God has actually brought. And in that space, the heart is towards justice and fairness. So again, we just say, the good news of the gospel applies to wherever you are. That's how this is good news. Okay, let's finally just say how I want this story to shape our story. right? I'm choosing this passage as the true north for our church and I chose it knowing this was in that text believing that for us to be a faithful people of God we will impact the world around us in our social and vocational settings you'll live out the gospel not just in this room or in your small groups or behind closed doors you'll live it out in the public square and history shows us that will take suffering it will actually cost you there will be persecution there are so many promises to God's people in the New Testament, that you will suffer. And not suffer because you vote a certain way or you call your congressman. You vote or you, you, you suffer because you're standing against real injustice in a real world, real oppressive darkness that parasitically attaches to everything that's good and distorts everything that's good, even things like God's Word. How, how fascinating and how crafty is the evil one? that he would distort even God's words to oppress people. He would parasitically attach to commands that are meant to liberate and free and, and give people hope and use them to actually be distorted into oppressive language to hold people back and down. In that space, we just have to stop and go, man, what does it look like for us to be a people that live out these truths? And I want to give you five categories. I want to give you a category of identity, of lament, of humility, of desire, and action. Identity, lament, humility, desire, and action. And I want you to see this flows out of the Colossians 3 passage. So we're not like changing gears to do a social and emotional settings. It's where we live these things out. So it starts with identity. To be a people that identify themselves with King Jesus, period, that that is our primary identity gives us freedom to engage in the world around us. And it gives us freedom to engage with social justice in our community without making social justice the gospel. Social justice is a natural, I think, necessary outflow of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. These people were in oppressive situations believing the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ died in your place to set you free And if you trust in him, he forgives you and you can have a relationship with God for forever. That's the good news of the gospel. And as you apply that, of course, it moves towards freedom. But that identity is not putting our hope in social justice. And you watched over the last couple of years people who did put their identity in either resisting social justice or in engaging it and how distorted that became. How loud and polarizing it became in our community. People that actually have a longing for something to be different now are fighting over certain ideologies because those have become a gospel. You don't have to be a socialist to be a Christian, nor do you have to be a capitalist. You don't have to vote a certain way. Your faith transcends because the identity is bigger than those categories. Social justice flows out of the gospel, but it's not the gospel, and for us to be a people that continually remind ourselves of who Jesus is, of what he's done for us, and how that shapes us is the thing that will give us staying power in a culture where you're going to actually suffer if you claim the name of Jesus. To stand against injustice, just like in the civil rights movement, Just like like those original abolitionists who, who pushed against the social norms, even against their Christian brothers and sisters to say this is wrong and they suffered for it. You will suffer as you push back darkness. This is not something that happens on blogs and over posts. It's something that happens viscerally, tangibly, with sinew and muscle, with looks on faces with sweat and blood and tears, and you have to have a grounded identity in Jesus to be able to do that. And if you don't, if you make some ideology the gospel, you'll traffic between pride and shame really quickly. And you'll begin to flip on other people a new version of dehumanizing those who disagree with you. You know the way our algorithms are set to polarize us in ways where you're not asking for conversation or to understand. You're being entrenched in your own view to the moral repugnant other. Some have called it in that space. What we need is a new identity in Jesus. From that space, we can actually move towards reform. Which, if that's the case, then what that means is God is the one who gives us our identity. He's the one who gives us our gender. He's the one who gives us our our social setting. There's agency, there's ways we should move. Even the scripture says, like, if you can't earn your freedom, you should. And there's a whole book of the Bible, Philemon, that's aimed at setting this brother free. And Onesimus is named in Colossians. So, so it moves towards agency, but there's this settling in, understanding God has given you what he's given you socially and vocationally to move towards his kingdom, which, which will keep us out of the traps of a new kind of superiority, of trafficking and like privileged guilt, which I realize is super complicated, we should be honest about our privilege but, but not be shamed by what God has given, Social vocational application means you're asking God, why did you give this to me to advance your kingdom? Can you see the parasitic nature of the evil one who would now attach to privilege where you actually have been given resources and perspectives to move towards justice in the world, how he might take that and distort that to where those with privilege are now pulling back? They feel diminished or they feel embarrassed or they don't want to overstretch and use their privilege in the world. And they've actually been shamed for having privilege. This is super complicated. Our our evil one is very, 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 very crafty. If you don't have a rooted identity in the good news of the gospel, then you will make a gospel out of everything else and distort the good news of Jesus in ways that now you can't use what he's entrusted in in your life to actually move towards justice and mercy, to act fairly and justly, masters. He doesn't say, get rid of all of that. He says, use that to be people that understand the scriptures talk about stewardship. Not shame, but stewardship. If God has given you privilege, God's given you an education, God's given you a stable home, God's given you a healthy marriage, God's given you a job with income, God's given you an education in ways that you can actually apply things. God's given you a mind to test well. I mean, go, go down the whole line. All of that, the scripture says, is given to you by God for his glory, for you to use in the world around you. You're free to be a steward of what God has given you when you realize God is the one who gave it to you. If you don't do that, you're going to find pride and shame in building your own identity, whether it's an ideological identity or a divesting yourself self-identity or a racial, or ethnic, or social, or economic identity, and all of those are bankrupt. So so we start with identity, to be a people that are stewarding the gifts God's given us out of a rested identity. And that will allow us to lament and to repent, to realize we've missed it. We haven't always done that well culturally and individually. Hey, the clock is haunting me now in this space, but like you have to own, there is modern-day slavery. Every time you click on pornography, you are participating in human trafficking. Whether that person was actually trafficked and is imprisoned, or you're just boasting up the supply and demand on that thing, you are participating in man stealing, little girl stealing, woman stealing, boy stealing. Man, that changes what you feel entitled to for comfort. If you'll see it as slavery, hey, and economically, I don't know what to do with it that most of the things you wear were made by slaves. I, I don't know what to do with that. I, I don't, I'm wearing the same things. I mean, my, These jeans cost me $12 from Costco. I, there's no way you can make jeans for $12 unless somebody is being oppressed. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what to do with that. I'm praying that God would give us a vision as a people of how do we actually think about robust justice, even in economic situations. I don't know how to think about that. My mind is too small, but I believe God's given gifts to his people to think about modern day slavery. We can lament and repent the world, the church, and ourselves, which will lead us to humility. Identity, to lament, to humility. And we think back in this passage, right? Colossians 3, 12. Put on them as God's chosen ones, that's about identity, holy and beloved, that's identity. Put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bear with one another. This, this humble engagement with those around you coming out of arrested identity because of who God is and what he's done for you so you can listen, so you don't offer simplistic answers. So you don't hate people that have a different version of solving the problem than you, but you can actually now draw close to them and ask, hey, would that actually solve the problem? Is there something we're dependent on with Jesus in that space? So, so humility, moving to desire. It doesn't just stay there and like this lament, it moves to actually action. Would you just begin with all of your questions? I know like everyone is frustrated and offended and we're racing and we're going too fast and it's going too long, but would you just stop and ask God to give you a desire to live out socially and vocationally his will for you in the world? Just desire it. Even if you don't know what to do, just desire it. You could ask, you could be in community, you could explore, you could read, there's steps you could take, but but would you just desire, pray, pray, for God to help, and then move towards action. This passage to masters is a great summary for all of us because all of us, even if you were born kind of in in an impoverished space that was racially motivated in our country, you still have more privilege than most in the world. I think we're all called towards justice and fairness. To just ask, what does it look like to express that? To be a church that is close to the heart of God, expressing these realities in the world around us. Identity, lament, humility, desiring the kingdom to be expressed in our jobs, and our world, and taking action. And we can do all of that when we remember that all of us were slaves to sin and unrighteousness, and Christ came to set us free. I'm fascinated as I look this week at all these different passages, how many times, both Old and New Testament, remembering that you were slaves that have been set free, is the motivation for you to move towards justice and fairness in the world around you. So we take communion to to remember that we were enslaved and Christ set us free. He helped us. He liberated us. He rescued us. And what you hold in this little loaf of bread that you'll tear a piece of the bread off and dip it into a cup is how he liberated us, how he set captives free. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and take all these kind of burdens and desires and confusing questions and frustrations and anger and sadness, lament and bring that to the cross of Jesus. Be sober-minded in this line today as you think about what Christ has done for us and what it meant for our liberation and ask that as you taste and are nourished by the broken body and shed blood of Christ that God would nourish you and change you to actually engage in the world around you. There'll be lines here at all these aisles. There'll be a gluten-free station here in the front. Let me pray for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, come and take communion. If you're not, just stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your worship guide that should help you. This meal is for those who are claiming Christ, who have been set free. If you want to talk about that, I would love to. I'll be right up here at the front. I would love to talk to you about that. But if you're not yet there, just stay in your seat and pray while those who are engaging with Christ's liberation come and take communion. Jesus, help us now. Would you move in our hearts in ways that we actually see you? are transformed by you, that you give us hope, you heal us, you grant repentance, you ground our identity, you let us lament, you give us a humble posture, you increase our desire, and would you reveal divinely now action? You took action. Would you give us action to take in response? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, come when you're ready and then we'll sing.